With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following story you are about to hear is true. A man searches for the Irish gangsters and crooked cops that he believes murdered his brother. Death threats, personal demons, and substance abuse shaped this man's warpath through New York City in the 1980s. I am Shane Cashman, and these are Tales from the Inverted World. Become a member at TimCast.com to get the full after-show conversation exploring this topic and more with special guests. If you comment on the episode at TimCast.com, we will answer questions in the members-only show. This is part one of a two-part story. The corpse that danced in Hell's Kitchen. I got to meet Paul in the first place because I refused to buy an easy pass. He used to be the toll booth collector at the Bear Mountain Bridge, right at the border of Orange and Rockland County in New York. The bridge stretches across the Hudson River, connecting Garrison to Fort Montgomery. Even though Paul is somewhat of a legendary figure in our little river town, I'd never met him until I was in my late 20s. I'd heard stories though. Fires, fist fights, switchblades, and all-around deviance. He used to own a bar that sat at the top of our town like a citadel. It was infamous for degeneracy in the late 1970s and into the 80s. Paul, for what it's worth was its ringleader. Years ago, I was crossing the bridge around midnight when I saw that they were installing a machine that would accept cash and replace the tollbooth collector's night shift. I felt a personal offense at the sight of the thing. Paul happened to be there that night and he seemed as unamused as I did. It was weird to see a man sitting next to a machine getting assembled that sole purpose was to take away the night shift, which I believe Paul enjoyed working the most and I happened to enjoy my brief hellos with the toll collectors. Plus, in the age of Easy Pass, the cash lanes actually moved quicker. Not long after, anytime Paul and I would cross paths on the bridge, he'd want to talk to me about his life. He knew I wrote stories and told me he had one for me about Hell's Kitchen, Irish gangsters, death threats, and murder. It didn't matter what time of day it was that I happened to cross the bridge. I would pay the toll, and he would tell me part of his story, sometimes causing a long line of traffic to line up behind me as I listened to him unspool his memory. He didn't flinch at people yelling at us, and I never released my foot from the brake until he felt like he'd told me enough in one sitting. For a while, I started to think he'd only taken the job at the bridge to get a good look at every person who crossed it, like he was waiting to find some of the people he had trouble with in his past life in Hell's Kitchen. In 1982, Paul drove an hour and a half down to Hell's Kitchen to identify his older brother's body. He hadn't seen Brian in seven years, not since they each threatened to kill each other. 
and ever since, they obeyed the self-imposed exile from one another, even if it meant that Paul was out of the family business and Brian couldn't return to his hometown. They'd drawn their lines and stuck to them. Their father had been dead for years, and Paul wouldn't put his mother through the trauma of having to see her firstborn on the slab in the morgue in Manhattan. It was up to him to identify his brother, no one else. The whole way down, Paul kept thinking, this ain't gonna be Brian. He's too smart to wind up dead in a police station. He figured his brother got into some trouble, like they always used to, and schemed up a way to swap out his body with some other poor soul from Hell's Kitchen. Even though it'd been seven years since they spoke, Paul was confident his brother hadn't changed much. Word of Brian's dealings would find a way up to Paul from time to time. So it was entirely reasonable to think his brother had finally screwed with the wrong person. He knew he'd been running a few bars in Hell's Kitchen and was still in tight with some Irish gangsters. Paul had the whole thing mapped out in his head. Brian probably found a way to steal a dead body, put his identification on it, and then he would have bounced out of the city before things got too hot. Their little brother Tom accompanied Paul in the back seat. Tom and Brian were 10 years apart. They really never had a relationship. Paul told him he didn't have to come, but Tom felt obligated. Their friend, who went by the name Murph, tagged along too. They parked outside the precinct. Paul and Murph decided to go in alone without Tom. The sergeant, a big guy, stopped them at the entrance. Paul could tell this cop was angry, so his fist tightened, just in case. He sized up the cop immediately. He was about six foot three inches and ran through all the different ways this cop might try to fight. This was a habit of Paul's. Anytime he saw someone, he thought about all the variations his possible opponent might choose to swing. It never mattered who it was. By the time Paul saw you, he already knew how to destroy you. What are you here for? The sergeant asked. Paul said, He's there to identify his brother's body. The sergeant took a breath, seemed to cool down, and asked for the name of the dead. Brian O'Callaghan, he said. The sergeant started to get real angry, huffing and puffing and throwing his arms up in the air. Oh no, oh hell no. We're not going through this again, the sergeant said. He's already been identified by his brother. I've been here 35 years and I've never seen anything like this in my whole life. What the hell is this guy talking about, Paul thought. He told the cop that there's no one else to identify the body but him. The sergeant said, well, your brother was already here. He paused to look around the station. That f***ing maniac flipped over every desk in here. Paul looked around and saw about 20 desks, half of which had been flipped. There were people picking up typewriters and papers and pens scattered across the floor. My brother only has two brothers, Paul said. I'm one of them, and the other one is out there in the car. So I don't know what you're talking about. Paul started to feel real good now because this had to mean Brian was definitely not dead. It made no sense. Must have been a big mix-up. I want to see the body, Paul said. He stood there like a mountain, not letting this big cop intimidate him. He just had to see the body. If it wasn't Brian on the slab, they would keep the secret and move on. It would be one last brotherly thing to do. If his mother went down and couldn't identify the body, that'd mean Brian could still be in danger. He might have hated his brother, 
but this was the least he could do. He'd like to think that Brian would have done the same for him. This is bullshit, the sergeant said, and then called two other cops over to take Paul and Murph down to the morgue below the precinct. On the way down the stairs, Paul was thinking Brian really pulled this off. That sucker. They walked up to the storage wall where other cadavers might have been waiting to be identified. The officer opened the door for Brian's body, slid out the long drawer, and to Paul's surprise, there he was. It might not have been that much of a surprise though since each brother swore to kill the other. Any reunion would have ended with one of them dead and the other one standing. Paul was more surprised his brother had actually allowed himself to get killed. Brian was too smart for that. He was light years ahead of everyone. This type of ending, it didn't suit him. It didn't feel right. The officer explained how Brian had been shot point blank three times in the back of the head. His face was black and blue from the damage to the skull. The cheekbones were slack, his face contorted. They found him in the driver's seat of his car, parked outside a discotheque on 11th Avenue. You know what the other guy did? The officer asked. He sort of motioned up the stairs at the mess in the station. What'd he do? Paul asked. The officer said it was a big Irish fella, heavy accent, piss drunk, came in here saying his brother had died and he had to see him. So the officer brought the guy down to the morgue and when he pulled out the slab, the Irish guy grabbed the corpse, put him in a headlock and took off running up and down the hall, running and dancing and singing with the corpse in his arms. Then he tore up the whole place. The cop described the whole scene as if the guy was swept up by such great and miserable grief that he'd been so rocked by grief, he became a nightmare, dislodged from reality. Give me his name, Paul said, feeling his adrenaline spike. Paul didn't know it yet, but this guy had put word out on the street that he wanted Paul dead because he was positive Paul was the murderer. That night, the cops brought Paul to Brian's apartment. There were four heavy locks on the front door, and each one had already been opened. One of the cops was holding a keychain with dozens of keys. He shook them at Paul and said he couldn't find out which key went to which lock. He went upstairs and got some guy to climb down the fire escape and through an open window. That's when Paul knew he couldn't trust these two cops. There was no way his brother would have went through the trouble of putting four locks on his door just to leave a window open. It didn't add up. He noticed it was a two-bedroom apartment and both of the rooms looked lived in. He asked who else lived there besides his brother. They told him it was a man by the name of Gil Morris, Brian's business partner. They ran a few bars together. Gil was out of town, somewhere off the coast of Oregon. The cops brought Paul's attention to a table with seven different landlines, each one with a different number. It seemed like Brian was bookkeeping, loan sharking, and through one of the lines, he was running a black market adoption ring. The cops gathered that he must have been some type of broker for parents to sell unwanted babies. If there was a way to make money, Brian wouldn't flinch. The number of phones in there alone made Paul think that whatever Brian had gotten himself involved with was much bigger than he expected. It could have been anyone who wanted him dead, and the phones still rang. Paul decided he would spend nearly every night in Hell's Kitchen until he figured out who was responsible for Brian's murder. For all he knew, 
It could have been anyone in Hell's Kitchen. But first, he had to bury him. Brian could return to his hometown the only way he could, in a casket. It just so happened that the last place the brothers saw each other was in Joseph's, the restaurant right next to the funeral home, about a two-minute walk from the house they grew up in. About half the people in attendance were cops trying to make sure nothing got out of hand because the other half were Irish gangsters with some affiliation with Brian. The parking lot was mostly cop cars and limousines for gangsters. Paul was in the hallway of the funeral home when he heard a heavy Irish accent booming through the entrance. He knew immediately that it must have been Kevin, the guy who danced around the morgue with Brian. The word had gotten back to Paul that this guy was dead set on killing him. When Brian turned up dead with three bullets in the skull, Kevin told everyone it was Paul, and it didn't take long for that rumor to spread north. By the time of the funeral, Paul had also realized it wasn't just Kevin who blamed him. The cops started to think it was Paul too, mutual friends as well. Even Paul's uncles thought that he might have been the one who pulled the trigger. Paul cut short whatever conversation he was having and bolted towards the Irish guy. He shoved him down the hallway into the bathroom and locked the door. Paul threw the guy against the wall. I didn't kill my brother, Paul said, but I'm telling you this. I will kill you. I got no problem with that. I'll kill you tonight or I'll kill you tomorrow. Whenever you f up, I will kill you. The guy tried to budge, but he wasn't going anywhere. Paul had calculated all this guy's weaknesses and the time it took to shove him down the hall and into the bathroom. From what Paul could gather, Kevin truly believed that Brian was his brother by blood. He'd been locked up in the Elmira Reformatory for nine years for killing a cop. When he got out, he had nothing and somehow connected with Brian. After a while, Brian kind of adopted him. It seemed to Paul that this guy became a sort of surrogate brother for Brian. Paul might have hated his brother, but he would never kill him. He'd do anything for him, just like he always had before their falling out. When Brian was 21, he was at the local bar all their friends used to call the Bucket of Blood. He was upstairs playing cards for money with a bunch of soldiers from the neighboring army base. Brian called Paul at the house. He sounded frantic. Paul, there's going to be some trouble in a couple minutes. Paul didn't know if his brother was cheating or one of the soldiers, but somebody was cheating. And it was probably Brian. He knew Paul carried a switchblade. He'd seen him filing it every day on the porch so he could snap it open and closed. Easy. Paul must have been about 17 or 18 at the time. Only a year earlier, he used that same switchblade on their own father when Paul was pissed drunk and stole the family Bonneville. His father tried to stop him and Paul brought the switchblade down the length of his father's arm before jumping out the front door and taking the car all the way down to the Bronx where he fell asleep at the wheel doing 90 miles per hour and crashed into another car. There's about four or five of them, Brian told Paul, anticipating trouble. Paul said, okay, ran down to the bucket of blood and hid behind the wall where the garbage cans were lined up by the back exit. The place never broke loose. Brian must have found a way to calm things down, but Paul waited there with the knife, ready to use it. The boys came from a family of rebels and soldiers. Their great-great-grandfather and his family fled Ireland because the British were trying to execute them for stealing some chickens. 
They made their way to County Cork, changed their last name, hopped on a ship, and wound up in Herkimer, New York. One of the boys joined the army to fight in the Civil War. He got captured and thrown in Andersonville Prison, a Confederate-run prison for Union soldiers. It was at one point almost 27 acres big and housed approximately 45,000 soldiers. According to the National Park Service, 13,000 soldiers died in custody. Somehow, Paul's ancestor escaped through the swamps. He slept in the day and ran through the night. Hounds chased him, Confederates chased him, all the locals were against him, but the black people he came across along the way were happy to help. They fed him and offered reliable directions through the woods back to DC, where he'd been previously stationed. It took him 31 days to return to safety. The boys grew up with that yes sir, yes ma'am bullshit, as Paul puts it. Their father was a strict, spit shine, shave three times a day type of military man. Not long before their father died, he and Brian were at Joseph's for some drinks. There were two guys getting kind of rowdy. Their dad said to Brian, you take the young one, I'm going to take the old one. Paul remembers the old one being much younger than their father. Growing up, Paul used to shadow box in his room and practice fighting. He'd picture anyone, his friends, his father, strangers he saw that day, and pretend to pinpoint all of their weaknesses so that when it came time to actually fight, he didn't even have to think about it. Second nature. He knew from an early age that his adrenaline was capable of going zero to maximum real fast because he never planned on losing. Aside from fighting, another family tradition was dropping out of school by 9th or 10th grade and joining the army. After Brian enlisted, Paul remembers him coming back from a tour in Korea a different person. He wasn't only more calculated now, but he seemed to have acquired new ways to balance his supposed normalcy with a penchant for real trouble. In his time in Korea, he'd become a bookie and a loan shark. He operated all his secret businesses out of a closet while stationed overseas. When he returned, Paul said Brian had made something like $15,000 from all his side jobs. After he returned, Brian took some time off and went to California. When it came time for him to go back to New York, he looked through the newspaper and found a guy who wanted to hire someone to drive his car back to the East Coast a brand new Thunderbird convertible. But Brian decided to take a detour to Las Vegas and blow the $15,000. He didn't arrive in New York until about a month later. Brian's problem, according to Paul, was that he was too smart. He knew what he could get away with and he didn't really like other people. It's a dangerous mix for someone trying to pretend to function normally in a society of rules someone who can exploit any loopholes to avoid consequences. By the time Brian was in his early 20s, he'd already had judges, union leaders, police officers, soldiers, and mobsters in his pocket. Eventually, all these connections helped him land a winning bid to run a cantina and multiple coffee trucks on the construction site for what would become the Meadowlands in East Rutherford, New Jersey. In the early 1970s, the Meadowlands used to be a swamp, but with enough state money, they turned it into a desert so they could build a casino and a racetrack on top of it. They installed a 20-foot wide tube that reached 10 miles into the Atlantic, and it siphoned the sand from the ocean floor to fill in the swamp. Thanks to some connections with authorities, 
that is, authorities who were corrupted by gangsters, Paul and Brian got the sole rights to operate a cantina on the entire worksite. They sold food, coffee, and cigarettes. They started the business out of a station wagon in Rockland, New York, and now they were guaranteed decent money every day. They were proud. It was like being in Arabia, Paul said. The whole place was sand with ten shanties in the desert. Aside from their business, there was a slab of blacktop on the far end of the site where the operating engineers made offices out of trailers. And there was a mysterious warehouse that was mainly used by the Hell's Angels. The Hell's Angels used to show up every morning around 7 or 8 o'clock. They'd arrive 30 deep, girls on the back of each bike, and disappear into the warehouse for the rest of the day. The only sounds that Paul heard emanate from within were gunshots. Supposedly, they were part of the operating engineers, but they were all no-show jobs, gifts from the mob, probably as payment for running security. Paul heard they built a pistol range in there, but it was some of the operating engineers who actually caused the most trouble. They were directly connected to the Irish gangs, or they themselves were the gangsters. One day, they came into the cantina just as Paul was closing and asked for 21 sandwiches. He had already cleaned up, but he said he'd do it anyway. As he was making the sandwiches, they took a bag and started loading it with all of the candy bars and drinks on display. Then they told Paul they weren't paying for any of it. Paul, who'd been working since four in the morning, said, I want my money, to which they replied, you're not getting it. As he was trying to ring them up, Paul called Brian. Brian told him to give it to them for nothing. Paul couldn't believe it. He didn't like caving into demands. That next morning, Paul woke up to a phone call around 3 a.m. All the tires had been slashed on the coffee trucks. My adrenaline was going f***ing wild, he said. He had to get down there and get 16 tires put on the trucks and out to work by 6 a.m. It wasn't long before he found out who sliced the tires and went after them. There were these two young guys who'd come in every weekend with black eyes and busted lips. Once Paul tracked them down, he didn't kill them but he wanted to. With his adrenaline pumping the way it was, they were lucky they survived. A few days later, Paul showed up to the cantina early to open up shop. He had his employees turn on the grill and get the meat slicer ready. When Paul asked someone to bring out the ham so he could start slicing it, they yelled back from the fridge, everything was gone. The fridge and the freezer had both been emptied out. The only thing the thieves left was the butter. Every time he spoke up in defense of his business, they'd retaliate. When they stole all the cigarette cartons out of the coffee trucks, he decided it was time to listen to his adrenaline. He called up Brian and asked him, straight up, for an Uzi. Brian told him to calm down. I know you're connected with someone who can get me an Uzi, Paul said. Brian told him he'd straighten it out. Paul called him a and decided to handle it himself. There was no time for patience. He needed to teach these guys a lesson to keep their hands out of his and Brian's business. He had a 73 Buick Riviera. The corpse that danced in Hell's Kitchen will continue next week.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.